This is Resonance. Evident I was sent by government to take your place. All I do is play the blues and meet the people face to face. I'll explain and make it plain. I represent the human race and don't pretend no more. Who's the real ambassador? Certain facts we can't ignore. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Resonance a music and sound diplomacy podcast that explores the history and cultural significance of musical exchange across the globe. The series seeks to highlight the impact and potential of music diplomacy initiatives at the state and non-state levels, and to strengthen the case for music as an important tool of cross-cultural communication in the arsenal of public diplomacy. Only differences will be in personality, that's what I stand for. Playing in the background is American trumpeteer and singer Louis Armstrong, performing The Real Ambassador. The song is part of a jazz musical based on Sachmo's time as a jazz ambassador abroad, representing the United States. The soundtrack to the musical, which represents themes like the civil rights movement and America's position during the Cold War, captures the complicated politics of the State Department during the 50s and 60s. The Real Ambassador sets the tone for today's discussion with Professor Nicholas J. Cole, director of the Master's Program in Public Diplomacy at USC, and a scholar well-versed on the subject of music diplomacy and propaganda efforts during the Cold War era. Welcome to the program, Professor. Thanks for having me, Jose. Professor, you're a historian of U.S. music diplomacy initiatives throughout mm -hmm. the 20th century. Not too long ago, you were also featured in a PBS film, uh, The Jazz Ambassadors, where you discuss jazz diplomacy during the Cold War period. Yeah. Could you tell us what the context for these uh, jazz diplomacy efforts uh, were at the time, and what was the impact that U.S. jazz diplomacy had around the world? Well, I think in as in so many um, international fields, you've got two kinds of explanation. You've got the push explanation, and you've got the pull explanation. And by this, what I mean is that The U.S. government was looking for ways to appeal to international audiences, and it came to understand that uh, American music was a particularly potent element in American culture that would could be pleasing to international audiences, and that through uh, facilitating the export of American popular culture, people would look more warmly on the United States. The flip side of this, the pull side, is that there were audiences all over the world who'd come to recognize uh, the value in American popular music really from the 1880s, 1890s onwards. And they had a, an ongoing demand for uh, American musical content. And you could see this even in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union. You had subcultures who um, looked to... Uh, jazz, who looked to other American musical forms as um, something important, something they loved, something they identified with, and they were hungry for content. So it made sense uh, for uh, Voice of America to include jazz in its international radio output, and it made sense when possible for 
the State Department and the United States Information Agency to um, send jazz musicians on tours uh, to engage foreign audiences. But what's really interesting is that the is that jazz diplomacy in the Cold War it didn't just uh, feed an existing demand for jazz. It also tried to shape it by picking particular kinds of jazz musicians. Mm. So, so the State Department would favor an integrated um, ensemble right. to show that in some way jazz was not just an African-American art form, but was something that could be used to bring people together and that uh, the United States was able to get over its racial differences. And, and maybe jazz was one of the forums in which you could see a white respect for African-American culture and a uh, an, an, an integrated approach. There's even an argument that jazz was presented as a kind of an analog to democracy, that mm -hmm. in democracy you see strong levels of improvisation once the rules have been agreed. And you also have to have a society in which people listen to each other. Now, a jazz ensemble operates in exactly that way. Right. Um, so uh, maybe <clears throat> jazz was, in its time, the perfect um, cultural form to promote the interests of the United States of America. So would you say that uh, the audiences abroad were already familiar with jazz by the time the jazz diplomats went, or they for sure, yeah. I know, my, you know, my experience is they they were. They might not have seen them live, but they knew that they were important. And uh, but I think it's quite. You, we have to differentiate between the kind of reception you had for Louis Armstrong in Eastern Europe and in um, with those audiences and the audiences in Africa, uh, where he was seen as being a son of Africa returning home, where. And I think for him, it was a very, very moving to be um, his commercial tour of Ghana was it was a tremendous moment for him. His latest State Department tours of uh, uh, Egypt and uh, right. th this is this is part of his own personal awakening as an as an international person. And um, I think that the by the time he gets to the sixties and he does this. Um, uh, participates in this uh, musical review, the Real Ambassadors. He can see the irony in a, an African-American person being called on to represent the country at a time when uh, people of African-American origin are still discriminated against in the United States. And, and, and he gets angry about that. Right. There's, a, there's a, um, uh, an element of, of anger in, in that uh, review. You know, the, the lyrics, the State Department has discovered jazz like a um, there's a sort of an irony in uh, the American government suddenly deciding to honor this art form that has been marginal in the past. And, you know, he's a little bit cynical about it. Right. I, from what I've read, um, one of the, the alternate or the, one of the stories behind the word jazz is the, that stood for jackass music. Um, so it was very it racialized from the beginning. Um, so in... I, to my understanding, they were able to speak uh, their own minds as well, correct? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, to a know, certain extent. Um, but this then gets onto the question as to what was, uh, what were the logistics of the tours? To what extent were um, were jazz musicians allowed to um, express themselves politically? And it varies from in uh, different times and different places. Um, I, I think that, um, 
some of the but some of the the really important communication is just their being there. The most dramatic example of jazz diplomacy would be the visit of Dizzy Gillespie to Greece, mm-hmm. where quite literally students who are rioting one day in an anti-American riot are listening to him at a, at a sort of an, uh, uh, at a concert the, the, the next day. And it is almost like a kind of a miracle cure for anti-Americanism to hear, right. hear um, Dizzy. But what, what impresses me with the jazz ambassadors is their interest in learning from the places that they uh, travel to, and particularly oh, yeah. with Dizzy Gillespie. In his, you know, his music is not the same as a result of his having visited um, Mediterranean and Latin America. That, and that's the greatest compliment that he could possibly give to his audiences is to pick out the musicians from the, those countries to play with, uh, to jam with, and then for his own music to reflect um, uh, he, to reflect his exposure to their culture, uh, that this great man is changed by having been in their country and played with their musicians. So, you know, an album like Nights in Tunisia, uh, I think is a really, you know, it's more significant than Dizzy going to these places was Dizzy Gillespie being influenced by these places and right. opening jazz to a broader um, cross-cultural uh, conversation. If he'd have been unchanged, or where you see people who just play their music unchanged, they don't listen, they don't communicate, they don't, they, 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 they just sort of drop it in a hermetically sealed parcel on an audience. I think that that's less. Um, I, I see that as a, a less effective mechanism of diplomacy. I agree. Um, to me, listening is it's a crucial part of musical engagement, and listening is crucial to public diplomacy That's right. and listening to cultures and listening to the world opinion. Yeah, um, what we hear when we listen is not always good. It's important to listen, but it doesn't mean you're going to hear things that you like. Right. But maybe that's why you need to listen exactly. in the first place because uh, you can bet if you don't listen, things are going to get worse. Totally. Um, and speaking of listening, I have uh, a track here. Um, I don't know if you're fami- familiar with Salah Ragab and the Cairo Jazz Band. The Cairo Jazz Band um, is uh, the product of, uh, it's basically the product of jazz diplomacy in the 60s. They, uh, uh, it was started by a drummer and multi-instrumentalist, uh, Salah Ragab, and he became a, a, a central figure uh, of jazz in the Middle East. Um, and in 68, he founded the, the Cairo Jazz Band. Um, and he, there's a quote of him saying that in 61, uh, Louis Armstrong charged the Egyptians with his trumpet in Cairo. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the jazz influence in his music. Let me play you a little oh, bit. Thanks. That's uh, Egypt Strut 
by Salah Ragab and the Cairo Jazz Band. And you can clearly hear oh, yeah. the jazz influence there yeah. and the Middle Eastern influence. But also the Middle Eastern influence. Yeah, but, you know, I'm, I, I started out as a film guy and I just want to see the, the movie that has that as the soundtrack, <laughs> you know. Totally, yeah. No, and that's something really, really cool about um, movies that you get exposed, especially international movies, or I guess more independent movies, people mm-hmm. that have a broader appreciation for music. You can get uh, introduced to some really interesting music out there. Yeah. yeah sure. um, professor, let's move on. Um, so, as a scholar of music diplomacy and propaganda, I'm sure you've encountered instances in history where there is a fine line between uh, one or the other. In regards to music diplomacy, can you think of initiatives in which music was clearly used as a tool of propaganda? Well, the the the, the one that springs to mind and the one that I would use to... Uh, dispute the idea that jazz has a um, necessarily a, a liberalizing effect is the uh, the use of jazz bands by the Nazis during mm-hmm. World War Two, and we have this strange case of the the ensemble called Charlie and his Orchestra, who would broadcast um, parodies of the the latest hits with funny lyrics. Uh, and they use these to demoralize uh, radio listeners in Britain, in the um, at sea, Americans at sea, and uh, anybody else who could pick up the the shortwave signals. Um, the prisoners of war, they, they prisoners of war got the, these songs on seventy eight, uh, and um, I think that uh, you know you in in some ways the, those songs challenge. Uh, should challenge those of us who are historians to think, well, sometimes this is an idiom and it and it can be used for good or for uh, ill. And right. um, uh, we shouldn't be complacent about the power of music. Right. I think I have um, one of Charlie and his orchestra's oh, songs. Great. This one is called uh, Let's Go Bombing. Actually. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> Let's Go Bombing. Oh, let's go bombing Like United Nations airmen do In the night when peaceful citizens are sleeping Far from any gunfire we are keeping This is probably the most radio-safe song that I found by them, (laughs) honestly. Yes. Um, They have all kinds of songs you can imagine against the Jewish population, yeah. against Western Churchill. Oh, Churchill personally is the, uh, you know, the, uh, who's, who's always, um, yeah, drunk <laughs> in their, uh, in their representation. <laughs> um, and I was reading a little bit about, uh, uh, music under, under Nazi occupation and, and I was reading about the, the Reich music chamber. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they were in charge of, of filtering what was good German music and mm-hmm. what, what was, not no, that's sure, uh, absolutely, and um, trying to hold out uh, degenerate influences right. was was part of their philosophy of uh, of culture. But they uh, they understood that when they were trying to appeal to a foreign audience, they had to, you know, they couldn't do that exclusively with Wagner, or uh, uh, you know, putting funny words to a Richard Strauss song cycle. That wasn't going to work. But they had to work with these international idioms to right. uh, secure an audience. Um, uh, but you know you can go back in German history and see how important, uh, as Germany was coming together as a polity, 
there were a lot of German institutions that were looking to use music as part of Germany's brand in the world, even though they didn't use the term brand. They um, uh, understood that Germany had this unique connection to orchestral music. And uh, so um, you know, there were German citizen organizations and uh, individuals who really worked hard to um, get symphony orchestras with German personnel into every major American population area. So, in fact, you weren't a city till you had your symphony orchestra with your right. German conductor and your connection to uh, German music. And this is in the 19th century. So mm -hmm. th there's this tremendous book on that by uh, the German scholar Jessica Geinau-Hecht. And uh, one of the ways in which Germany represented itself to the world in the 19th century was as um, uh, this musical this musical culture mm -hmm. um, and a literary culture. But, m but music was very much front and center right. in, in self-representation, though oddly German-Americans were not part of the, uh, the, the demographic drawn into uh, symphony orchestras. They were, you know, they, they were seen as the, or they saw themselves as the farmers who, uh, and the people who were most involved in the symphony orchestras were the, uh, the old American families, mm -hmm. the... Um, uh, kind of the uh, people of uh, British Dutch descent who right. had other ways of uh, were, were looking to ways of demonstrating their social superiority. Yeah, and you mentioned Strauss, yeah. um, and I was reading that he actually headed the the yes, Reich yes. Music Chamber for a little bit. Yeah, um, and he played an interesting role in, in protecting a lot yeah. of the Jewish players during. Oh, that's good. I d uh, um, I, I I didn't know that one one. Of the interesting stories that comes out of this musical diplomacy around World War Two is that it's it it the uh, I think 1940 was supposed to be the uh, uh, anniversary of the founding of the imperial dynasty in Japan, so the emperor of Japan commissions all of the world's great living musicians mm -hmm. to create a piece of music to. Um, Praise Japan, or to, uh, or in celebration of of this moment, and Richard Strauss is the man who writes a piece of music for um, for uh, from Germany, and for 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 Britain, British contribution is supposed to be composed by Benjamin Britten, mm -hmm. and what Benjamin Britten decides to do is to compose a war requiem and bring in tributes to uh, war dead with the implication that he's talking about the people who've died because of uh, Japanese uh, military intervention on the Chinese mainland. And it causes a big diplomatic stink. The Japanese are very angry about it. Uh, also that it's using a Christian liturgy uh, for a non-Christian, to celebrate a non-Christian country. Um, so it's a fascinating example of how a piece of musical diplomacy can go awry and one of the great themes that we find when we're talking about this is you never know what an artist themselves is going to do right. once the government asks an artist you are in some way uh, you have introduced this uh, unknown factor into the equation and uh, there are a number of examples of artists using the moment extended to them by a um, nation state or a government using that platform to speak for something they believe in. And Benjamin Britten was a pacifist. He was not going to turn a blind eye to Japanese military aggression in uh, on the Chinese mainland. 
and there are other examples we can see where artists have surprised people by speaking out right. on a particular issue. And you know, right now we have, well, in in my own research, I've looked at the positions of artists around apartheid in South Africa, the ones who took part in a boycott, the ones who thought the boycott didn't apply to them because everybody knew they were cool. So. Uh, people like Frank Sinatra and Paul Simon who had to be brought into line um, and we can see today how um, BDS around Israel is right. throwing up issues around should an artist participate and, um, it's a big deal for Israel when an artist goes there because this is another one that isn't respecting the BDS principles so um, it's a live issue in our in our world today um, and a fascinating one to track totally it seems to me that music is taking more seriously in the cultural realm of, of public diplomacy during wartime. Yeah. Um, it's it's no longer considered the the cultural cheesecake. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so the, I, I wanted to ask you, what about the United States during wartime? What are examples of, uh, of U.S. Uh, propaganda through music? Would you consider, I've queued up... Uh, a song by Saludos Amigos. Uh, I'll mm -hmm. play it right uh, after mm -hmm. your response. But uh, would you consider Saludos Amigos uh, a form of propaganda? Well, yeah, the uh, absolutely. Maybe I should talk through what that what that was because um, for the United States, uh, in the first instance, before it got involved in a war for the liberation of Europe or a war to defeat Japan or Germany its strategic priority was on at least protecting the Western Hemisphere. And the United States government understood that one mechanism for strengthening that hemisphere defense, as it was called, was to promote exchange and understanding. And they understood, uh, I think, quite insightfully, that it wasn't just necessary for the Latin American countries to understand the United States, but for the United States to understand Latin America. And that meant for example, combating uh, American ignorance or United States ignorance of things Latin. So they uh, sent down cultural ambassadors to collect stories about Latin America, bring them back to the United States. And there probably, was listening. Yeah, there was listening. That's right. There was listening. Now, the people that they sent down are maybe not the world's greatest listeners. So uh, the for the film, um, uh, you know, two uh, of, the, of the greats of that moment, Orson Welles went to Brazil, Uh, Disney did a, a sort of a, a four-country tour of right. Latin America because he's certainly, he's in, well, he does the Southern Cone. So he's in Argentina, he's Brazil. in Brazil, he's in Chile. Uh, does he go to Paraguay? I can't remember. But he's sort of in that in that neighborhood and he creates this film called Saludos Amigos, Hello Friends, and creates little characters to represent each of the, uh, the countries of the Southern Cone. So right. uh, the Brazilian character is this... Um, Uh, uh, club loving um, was he a parrot? Uh, parrot yeah, parrot. Joe Jose uh, Carioca. Oh, that's right. Yeah, for the right. for the Brazilians, Jose, Jose Carioca. Jose Carioca. Yeah. yeah, and then Goofy dresses as a gaucho yes, for an Argentina, Argentina and then 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 the Chileans absolutely hate this little <laughs> airplane that's sort of trying to deliver mail over the Andes and can't really get airborne there. Right. Um, so uh, uh, I think the Brazilians uh, come out of this the best. And they have this amazing totally. soundtrack, uh, Aquarelles of Brazil, uh, which is, uh, you know, remains a a a, a classic. Totally, um, yeah. And just uh, just to add to that, this uh, it, it's not not only Aquarelles of Brazil; it's also Tico Tico no Fuba, another mm -hmm. common uh, 
they're called choro music. Mm-hmm. Choro is just popular Brazilian music. Um, and it literally means uh, sparrow in the cornmeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the context of, of this, this is part of the uh, 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 an animation where you see uh, Jose Carioca uh, just talking to Donald Duck and introducing him to Brazilian culture. Uh, he shows him the music, they do a little dancing, and then they end the, they end the scene with uh, a shot of uh, cachaça, which is like yeah. their moonshine. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's okay, right. let's hear it really quick. As you Americans say, let's go see the town. Okay, so where do we go? Donald, I will show you the land of the samba. Samba? What samba? Ah, the samba. Definitely, uh, the character of Zé Carioca became an icon over mm-hmm. there in Brazil. Well, the other thing that comes out of this period is that uh, they re- uh, the U.S. government realized that they had to have more positive representations of people from Latin America in Hollywood movies. So they bring in, uh, or uh, two actors really get their start at this time, or a boost at this time. Uh, one is Ricardo Montalban, and the other is Carmen Miranda. Mm-hmm. And uh, they these people kind of embodied for a season, right. uh, Latinness in uh, American popular culture. But, you know, the fate of this initiative was that eventually the United States got tired of listening and felt that it was more important to tell the people of the world and people of the Latin region the answers. And it became more and more one way until post-World War II. Um, you know, the, the U.S. rather put listening on the back burner, shall mm-hmm. we say in favor of uh, asserting its power and uh, uh, its, its uh, visions, a vision of the future, right. which you'd expected Latin America to conform to. And I think um, uh, uh, drop it, uh, align itself with, um, which I don't think was, you know, uh, I don't think it was the wisest course to take. Uh, people, uh, you know, who wants to be in a relationship that where only one party does the listening and only mm-hmm. one party expects to be transformed by the relationship we, we you know we have an expectation of mutual transformation in our in our personal relationships and i think it should be the same in our international relationships definitely um but to me the the line between uh public diplomacy and propaganda specifically in 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 regards to saludos amigos is a little blurred oh for sure even though yeah, it's very patronizing. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's patronizing. But then at the same time, um, I remember growing up and I seeing Saludos Amigos, and I had no idea that it it, it was some part of a, a state driven propaganda. Yeah. Uh, but I think yeah, I think I, I just think it's very interesting how even just in the context of Latin America and specifically Brazil, the Bossa Nova was created thanks to the also the jazz diplomacy efforts there mm-hmm. where they mix the traditional samba music uh, with jazz. And then we get Saludos Amigos and Zé Carioca as one of the their main icons over there too. Um, yeah, that just speaks to the, the 
power of music to just start a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you're saying, it's it's to me, music uh, is asking to be more uh, multi, like non-hierarchical, less uni- unilateral, because the aspect of listening and playing music or or singing or or speaking is just a two way mm-hmm. and no this is right but we but, but i think another thing that's important is that we should be continually revisiting this musical landscape and we shouldn't assume that because it worked in the past it will work today in the same way so you know germany would be crazy to just keep hammering away at promoting uh german orchestral music because that's what worked in the 1800s and by the same token the united states would be crazy to keep hammering away at jazz because that's what worked in the 20th century they have to work with where the people are with what people care about what people engage with and i think right now that means talking about hip-hop and totally. talking about other musical forms that maybe uh, and, and and I I put this to Brit uh, you know I think about Britain too that Britain should be talking about its most exciting and innovative forms of musical production and it makes more sense now to be talking about Dizzy Rascal rather than Benjamin Britten mm-hmm. you know you have to think well, who who uh, who represents the kind of the uh, something exciting to share and and that Americans might be more interested or might get more or, or be able to um, develop more of a of a partnership around new newer British musical genres like grime rather than working with um, you know the, uh, a more rarefied um, classical British form totally yeah and and from my trips to England um, I stayed in Brixton for two oh, yeah. weeks, yeah, yeah. just exploring the music over there. And so what a great thing to do! The Jamaican uh, yeah. diaspora there is everywhere, and you can tell by the their influence in music. Uh, I I I was lucky enough to be there during Jamaica's Independence Day, and they just threw through a huge ska dance hall party in all of the the little downtown uh, area, um, and and Brixton seems to be a very musical city. Uh, I was able to to get uh, one of those Brixton pounds. Are you familiar <laughs> yeah, with those? Yeah, yeah. And uh, nice. I got the ten dollar, the ten, the, the ten, ten Brixton pound pounds. Yeah. It's uh, David Bowie. Uh, and uh, I hear that the hundred one is uh, Bob Marley because he used to live there. <laughs> but also, yeah, it just just speaks to and 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 to me, England is always at least the counterculture uh, of England, whether it was uh, punk and how they mm-hmm. uh, appropriated. Uh, or they mixed with the Rastas and they created a hybrid of, of punk. For sure, ska. for sure. And you can see this. I mean, if you listen to The Police, it's quite clear that, that um, Sting's vocal style owes Definitely. a lot to a Caribbean vocal style. Definitely. And uh, um, so, so, so much um, amazing hy- hybridity going on. Right. And I think that um, that's something that Britain uh, can celebrate and can engage around in in terms of its uh, cultural diplomacy. Though, you know, it's sad that sometimes uh, the musical creativity has been less foregrounded in uh, um, the the official narrative of Britain that it's emphasized heritage. Certainly, in the early nineties, there was mm-hmm. more emphasis on heritage than on innovation. Right. Yeah, Tony Blair switched that around, and it's still. 
today, you know, it's a big part of this Britain's so-called great campaign is emphasizing uh, great British music, great British culture. And um, I think that's... that's uh, was it Tony Blair that uh, pushed the Spice Girls? Yeah. Well, <laughs> but the Spice Girls were there. He just sort of claimed them as, right. uh, <laughs> as characteristic of the country rather than some kind of aberration. Right. You know, Interesting. So... In the uh, end, I think we prefer the Spice Girls to Tony Blair because the, uh, the Spice Girls didn't drug us into a war <laughs> in the Middle East. But <laughs> um, So just uh, we're about done now. And I wanted to uh, introduce you to this segment that we mm -hmm. have in this show called the musical piece breakdown in okay. which um, I'll play you a couple oh uh, a couple songs and just uh, we can discuss a little bit of they're very related to what we just okay. uh, talked about um, but I think it's it, putting them in, in, in an interesting context uh, makes for a rich uh, discussion mm -hmm. of them um, the first one is uh, the song Manteca by Dizzy Gillespie mm -hmm. uh, which we discussed uh, one of the jazz ambassadors mm -hmm. and Chano Pozo who is a uh, an Afro-Cuban uh, percussionist. Mm -hmm. And Dizzy met Chano before his uh, uh, jazz diplomacy tours. Um, and to me, uh, I think this, uh, this connection uh, made Dizzy's, created that disposition for Dizzy to be right. more uh, open to right. go travel the world right. and, and expose the, right. the world to jazz. Uh, let me play Manteca by Dizzy Gillespie and Chano Pozo. you can hear how it, it transitions for from a from a afro-cuban percussion um and what they call uh the afro-cuban ostinatos mm -hmm. um to a more classical swing uh, mm -hmm. part and those were both composed the first part the intro and the a section were chano pozo mm -hmm. and then next it was uh dizzy mm -hmm. but then you can hear mm -hmm. the melodies and everything yeah, throughout the whole yeah yeah it's a it's a really really cool well, it shows how music can bring things together and blend uh, blend things naturally and enjoyably and I suppose that you know the other place where we see this happening is on the, uh, in, in foods totally uh, yes and um, you can see how a, a, a blend and a harmony and a, a kind of a confluence of, in, of influence can be um, realized yes in, an, in a really enjoyable way um, yeah I think it's it, it's a perfect uh, analogy right there because um they change with foods or national dishes change with uh, uh, 
the different cities, the different regions, sure. uh, and when they migrate as well. Yeah. Um, right now, I'm very uh, into this Peruvian. Uh, oh yeah, that's a great story. Food, but here in LA, it's changing a little bit because the ingredients are changing, and then there's the Mexican influence to it. Yeah. So there's very there's. There's definitely uh, analogies between well, the Peru- Peruvian plate is maybe is you know is one of the great uh, metaphors for cultural blending. Totally, yes. We mm. in over there in terms of music, and we have you know it's, you've got Afro-Peruvian. that Peruvian, you've got that Japanese component too. Yes, that, they're, they're not going to let bad seafood get onto the get onto right. the plate. And uh, that's know. something that's that's kind of interesting to me because you don't hear uh, a Japanese or Chinese influence in the music there. Yes, in the food. Yeah. But not in the music. You have the the Afro Afro Peruvian yeah. uh, influence, and then you have the Amerindian, the Amazonian, yeah, but not influence. not the the Asian. Even though it's such a huge element in in the yeah. food, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So this this song Manteca is uh, considered to be uh, the first tune uh, rhythmic rhythmically based on the Cuban clave, which right. is like the Cuban heartbeat for music, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the first one to become a jazz standard. Um, and this song helped the development of, of jazz itself, of Latin jazz, mm-hmm. and then of uh, salsa with uh, Celia Cruz. Uh, and to me, salsa is, it literally means, uh, what does it mean? It's like it's the mixture of the yeah, spices, yes, yeah. you know? And, the, and that in itself is, it's salsa is in, it, in Cuba, they don't like to call it salsa, they like to call it son. But in the states, it's salsa because it's not just the Afro-Cuban sun, but it's jazz, and then it's, uh, the different rhythms that they uh, they utilize. And uh, just to end it on a on a on another note, I have uh, the following song. This is Django Reinhardt. Oh yeah. Um, and this is his song Nuage, which means uh, clouds in French. And this song kind of links to what our discussion on World War Two. And mm-hmm. how Paris was uh, invaded by uh, by the Germans, um, and Django, uh, even though he is uh, Romani, yeah. uh, and the the Holocaust murdered, they say between two hundred thousand and a million uh, Romani mm-hmm. uh, populations, along with the with the Jewish populations, he was protected by uh, by by the Germans because he was uh, the musical representation of, of Paris. He was uh, Parisian right. music. The Romani influence in Django's uh, style is beautiful, but what's also really, really cool about it is the jazz influence. Uh, he was a, a big fan of Dizzy Gillespie, yes. which we uh, ja- yeah. uh, just played. Um, and during the invasion of Paris, he was uh, the, the main uh, performer there. And he, the Marseillaise was uh, banned. Oh, so yes, it was banned. Yes, you've got the, uh, yeah, you've got the, I have, uh, the Django Reinhardt's Marseillaise. Well, it's not his Marseillaise, but it, it's his version of uh, uh, an ode to yeah, the Marseillaise. Okay. So it's, it, yeah. it's called Clouds. Yeah. And yeah, let's, uh, let's, play, let's listen to it real quick.
I'm a guitar player, mm -hmm. and he's one of my favorite players ever. Um, and in the jazz world, uh, it's considered that American jazz players were the only ones that made a difference. But in Europe, yeah. Django was the only one, the, the main representation of jazz over there. And like I was telling you, he mixes the, the, the swing uh, strumming mm -hmm. of, uh, uh, of Romani music mm -hmm. with uh, the chromatic and really fast, uh, almost beboppy uh, licks that jazz has. Uh, and what, what I like is that eventually uh, he would play with Dizzy and Louis Armstrong in France. And there's, uh, there's stories about how he could not stop talking to them and wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't perform because he was just uh, talking music with Dizzy. Uh, so it's, yeah, so it's it, it's really really beautiful, and to me, um, his music is, is uh, just an amalgamation also of the different. But, like where, but where this gets us, Jose, is to then well, what is the role of government in all this? And to me, what a government has to understand that um, if it can enable, if it can facilitate this contact between musicians, right, then it's doing something really valuable for the world and promoting a kind of a in promoting our mutual understanding and. What could a government do? Well, the government of Ireland abolished income tax for poets. Maybe uh, there's low-hanging fruit out there is for a government to say, okay, money earned from music is earned tax-free. Right. And, and, and I've actually, I, I proposed that to the Romanians. I said, you know, why don't you, if you want to do something to promote the image of Romania, be the, music, be, yeah. be the musicians, uh, music is tax-free country. Right. And um, I know there's incentives in Brazil too, because Brazil- It would be a good idea for somebody to do that. Uh, yeah, to, this is something that, that, you know, why not be music's home country? Why not be the country that facilitates bringing people together in this in this way? Totally. That, you know, I think you know, Brazil started to uh, have some incentives, haven't they? Uh, well, it, they had uh, Gilberto Gil as yeah, the, when he was minister of culture, the minister of culture, and he was providing some incentives uh, for music, right? Um, the cultural points. And totally. That system they had there. And then Cuba also, but it, when I visited Cuba last year. Uh, music was absolutely everywhere. They teach yeah. the tourists how to play the clave, uh, <laughs> and it's just that—that's just part of their culture. But also, musicians are—it's are, a state job to be a musician. Mm -hmm. Musician there, uh, so that was interesting. But it—it uh, will get a little boring because it was just the Buena Vista Social Club songs, a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> uh, even though there's so much, uh, so much other, so much more music over there. Um, so, Professor, yeah, I, I want to thank you for your time discussing music diplomacy with us. This was very enriching. I wanted to ask you just one, one last question before we leave. Do you have any final thoughts on the importance that music has had in the field of diplomacy throughout history? What would you tell uh, our future diplomats or just the people in Congress? Why is music important? Well, I think that music is the greatest reason to listen. And to me, the central lesson of diplomacy is to to listen. And you need, uh, if you listen, you hear music, and it's the reward for listening. And in order to perform, you have to listen, listen to your other performers. And so, to me, music is this amazing uh, 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 metaphor and an instructive, um, uh, an, an, an instructive uh, paradigm of how we approach others. And so, I see that. Uh, 
that you know by pointing to music we have this uh, way that even little kids can understand um, the, the importance of uh, of this as a way of approaching difference in our world and um, so I see it as absolutely uh, fundamental now it's only a start you can't remain uh, at the level of listening music appreciation you have to work out things that you do together mm -hmm. and move forward but you know a start is a start totally. and uh, um, this is to me this is an excellent place to begin i thank you very much for uh, joining us today oh, thank you so much for having me <laughs>